We have so many stories in our lives, but our stories are not always heard. On the Hear My True Story podcast, we tell our own true stories. Before the white car backed, our head teacher had scattered. Looking at him, I could only see his tie that was flying backwards, waving at us, and he disappeared in thin air. I want to share my life story. I want to share my voice with the people because I know that uh, just a small joke I can tell through this, this podcast, it will make someone smile. When you ask me what I fear most in life, I would definitely respond to you and say it's fear itself. We are fighting for togetherness. We are fighting for equal rights. We are fighting to end injustice. You don't have to be a storyteller or writer because, guess what? Life writes the best stories. Hear my true stories. This is your favorite time of the week with your number one one podcast. Hear my true stories. Our dear listeners, welcome back again this week on this wonderful podcast. It is me, your host, Otako. Yeah, in this episode, we continue our conversation with our guest, Karen. She talked so much about how to end illegal adoption in Uganda, how you should not fund orphanages in Uganda in the previous episode. However, in this particular episode, we get to know more about what she was doing in Uganda, what was her experience, and what can you learn from her experience? I mean, are you a person who's living in Europe or in the global north and you are looking at a way of moving to the global south, maybe particularly going to Africa or more to live in a country like Uganda? You need to stay on this episode and you need to listen to that. Even though you don't look at yourself going to Uganda to live there, maybe you want to know to learn from people's experience what happens when I go to another country as a person. What do I learn? And also maybe if you want to know more about the white privileges, how to be reflective, listen to this episode and you'll get to know from her experiences and you'll learn a lot. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to a brand new episode. Hear my true story. Yes. Hello, my friend. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, could you please maybe introduce yourself for our dear listeners on the podcast so that they can get to know you more? Okay. My name is Karen Riley. I used to live in Uganda. I just moved back just over a month ago. I lived in Uganda for nearly 12 years mainly working in the arena of um, vulnerable children and their mothers. Um, and I ran an organization called Reunite, which used to get children back home who had been trafficked for adoption um, or kidnapped or stuck in orphanages. We would get them back home to their families. Yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, yeah, it is me, your host, Otako, as usual, and I'm happy to be here again. Uh, I want to ask you, you lived in Uganda for 12, 12 years. Wow, that's yes. too long. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny we originally we only went for two to three years that's what we told all of our family and we just thought we'll just go and do what we were supposed to be doing and uh yeah it just went on and on and on and I think when you've got children and they start doing their schooling and then they're having to do GCSEs A-levels blah 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 you end up getting kind of I wouldn't say trapped but kind of stuck you know with making sure that they're getting through their their educational systems and then time just goes yeah i never thought that i would have been there for that long wow so uh then that brings the question you coming to uganda your first time what is what was it like for you my first time was in 2005 when um <clears throat> we came to adopt our son So the first time was only three weeks and then we had to come back a few months later for two weeks to come and um, get him to bring him home because of the process. Um, oh, I really loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the um, the red soil that you have, the red earth. I loved the boulders, the craziness of the traffic, friendliness of the people. I loved Matoke and Jeanette sauce. Um I love the River Nile. There was so much and all the hustle and bustle, all the little, you know, the little hotels and the shacks on the side of the road, all of that kind of thing. You know, it, it's a very different experience going to Uganda for a few weeks or even a few months as it is when you live there full time, long term. It's a very different experience because I think when you just go there as a visitor, you don't really see anything and you're not really aware of of the deeper issues that are going on um you know you'd never know about trafficking and any of the exploitation things that are going on of course um but like i said when you live there longer and you get to know ugandans and get to understand the culture more um you you see things that, that you like i said that you wouldn't necessarily see and it's the same vice versa you see more about the exploitation of western countries are having western ngos are having missionaries are having um then you would if you had just been there for a few weeks uh i wanted to uh to just ask you for these uh years that you lived in uganda yeah i mean yeah. what what was your reflection on life so far as as a white person living in an african country how was it for you for 12 years um I mean it's so difficult to sum up you know in in a couple of sentences I mean I'm I'm really I'm really glad and feel privileged that I had that opportunity to live in Uganda for so long because it's not so easy vice versa you know when people when when Ugandans are trying to live over in UK for example or America it it I think it's harder to get a visa so I know it's a real privilege and it's an unfair privilege because there's so many uh, disparities around around that but um I I am really grateful that I could raise my children there I have no regrets at all in raising my children in Uganda it it meant that they 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 had a really good education and they had friends from across the continent mainly eastern uh, africa but also from from uh, they had amazing friends from south korea and from america and europe you know very international um experience for them and i've made friends as well not just east african friends but all over the world so that was amazing um i mean there were difficulties i missed i missed some food like i know ugandans miss when they live abroad definitely that's a similar thing you always seem to miss food 
the weather and your friends and family. And it was it, it, there was no difference from that for me because I missed the rain and the cold. I missed strawberries and um, cheese, uh, cheap cheese, not the expensive cheese in Uganda. And of course, my family and friends. Um, but I also gained a lot of things as well. And I learned a lot. Like I didn't, I'm still learning, of course. I'll always learn, but I didn't know um, about white privilege until you live in um, an environment like Uganda and you re- and you see very clearly how you're being given privilege over uh, local people and um, how important it is to kick back to that and speak into that and, and refuse to accept that um, treatment and to make sure that the Ugandans are being treated the same as you and you're, you know, you're verbalizing that. Um, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, but I don't regret going, but I'm also really glad that I'm home. It was time for me to come home for lots and lots and lots of different reasons. And um, I'm I'm very happy to be home, mm-hmm. even though Uganda's still there. And I will visit again because we've still got some court cases going on. And I would like to be able to, uh, especially with the one case, get there um, when it's getting towards the end um, and just pop over for a week if I can. But, um, but I'm definitely back where I belong. And it's just, I'm just enjoying not, there's no expectations on me here from everybody. Because in Uganda, everyone just thought that I had lots of money and that I was rich. And that was really hard because we were really struggling. Um, so I'm I'm not missing that. And I don't miss all the Karamajong children, you know, at, at, the, at, the, at my car window at traffic lights. I found that so difficult to deal with. I never, ever, ever got comfortable with knowing how to deal with that situation. Well, actually, in the end, the way I dealt with it is I used to just put on Rihanna or Beyonce really loud on my stereo and just dance in my seat and get these kids dancing, you know, outside the window just to give them two minutes of joy. Um, because I didn't know what else to do because I couldn't give them anything. I knew giving them food and drink was and money, of course, was the wrong thing. But equally, I couldn't ignore them because I didn't want them to feel invisible and that they weren't seen. I didn't want them to feel like it was a mirage in front of me. It's really hard, isn't it? I don't know how you used to deal with it, with the Karamajan kids, but it was one of my biggest, biggest, biggest challenges, actually, living in mm. Uganda when I was out in my car. I find it so hard. Yeah. I mean, like, um, when you see these uh, children from the Karamoja region, who are on the streets of Kampala and begging, and it's good that you didn't give them money because they, that's that's another form of human trafficking where they bring kids from Karamoja and other parts of Uganda to beg on the street. People employ those children on the street to beg money, and at least every day each kid has to report back with maybe like one pound or two pounds per day. And it's not like exactly. they're poor. They, someone is using them. Exactly. But did you see, I think it was last week, I, I saw on Facebook, it was either the Monitor or the Vision, that there'd been this massive, massive, massive um, a campaign and outreach by undercover police officers. They weren't even in their police outfits, right? It was a bit scary, actually, for me looking at these photographs, because mm. they were literally just picking up these kids, yanking them off the street, throwing them in these vehicles. I think they took 200 children off the street that day. But I was thinking to myself... You know, you have to respect children. That is an incredibly traumatic experience for children to be picked up in that way. They don't even know their police officers. They didn't. Anyway, the photograph that I saw, 
They didn't have police outfits on. It could have been a thug. It could have been anybody trying to kidnap them, try to do bad things to them. But, you know, it, it's, but, but, you know, the whole Karamajong issue, Dwelling Places is one place. I don't know if you know Dwelling Places. I know. They're a, yeah, they're an excellent organization. So I have a friend there that works there. And um, so I hear stuff that they're doing up in Karamajong. And it's a very complicated situation, isn't it? It's not as easy as picking them up, throwing them in a van and trying, dumping them back. It's a yeah. much more complicated as it always is. It's about what's going on up there, and you know why are they why are they being trafficked in the first place? Yeah, um, yeah. But that was the one of definitely. If I think about uh, that, was one. It was up there in the top three. I would say hardest things that I found about living in in uh, yeah in in Uganda was was the knowing how to deal with the street children in the right way. And I think there needs to be a lot more teaching and education about that, about short-term people, tourists, and short-term people that come, how uh, white people especially. Because, of course, when you're sat there behind the wheel, they get so excited when they see a white person. You should see how fast they run up to my window, hoping that I'm like a lot of the other white people that just throw money at them. And then, of course, then there is the disappointment when I say I'm no neda center. You know, no money. I'm not giving you money. And then, um, and then, but they liked when I put the music on. That that was a thing that I found really helped because you know what it's like if you don't have access. If you've got somebody's got a good speaker and really good tunes, mm. you know, and you don't get that chance to listen to really great Rihanna. I love Rihanna and, and Beyonce. They they were my music, you know, to to, to cope with with driving. <laughs> on the crazy streets of Kampala. But the kids loved it. They loved hearing that music. So I was really glad. I only started doing that in the last few months before I left. But it really worked. And I was really glad that I found some kind of solution just for that moment, you know, so that I didn't do the wrong thing. Yeah, I get that. And it's real tricky. But the, I mean, like, because the government of Uganda is not really dealing well with this issue. What they do instead of um, throwing the kids to remand homes, they should deal with the traffickers. These are people in the system who collect these kids from Karamoja, put them on buses and bring them to the city to beg. Exactly. Because I've been to one of the tra- I've been to one of the transitional centers. I went to Kampungizi in 2005. Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that experience. That will haunt me. Well, it does. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it's not, it's, I'm not, not sleeping at night, but the, when I say Kampungizi, I see images in my mind, you know, stuff that I saw, children chained, you know, behind prison, the, 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 the door, you know, the, in the cell with the, the, what, what are they called? The things that they hang on to in there. And, um, you know, like there was a baby there with no clothes on, just being passed around, like all these street boys. And I was like, oh, my gosh, who is looking after this child? And who's making sure this child is, well, they're all children, but who's looking after this baby? And, oh, it was just a horrible experience. Yeah. Just terrible. I mean, terrible. the entire uh, rehabilitation system in Uganda is not really good for the children. And it's really hard. And that's where the problem is. If they deal yeah. with that problem and they deal with the next problem in the police and system, then there will be no child on the street because the system yeah. is there to support them and protect them. But exactly. I'm happy that you were not giving them money because some uh-uh, some never. people give money to anyone they exactly. find. Yeah. 
But you know what, though? This is this is a typical thing of any challenges that are in Uganda is you've got the system letting um, the children down or the vulnerable people down. But then you've also got the Western people coming in and actually making it worse. Because if they continue to give the money and if they continue to make it a a place of pleasure in a way for the children on the street because they can get money, they can get food, they can get things, they can get whatever, it's not going to stop. So like anything... It's like a handshake. A handshake can only happen because two hands meet. And you need the two. You need the you need the local intervention and, and policy change and change. And then you need definitely Western people stop doing what you're doing, problematic things which are making things so much worse and keeping the children on the street. Because otherwise, policy and and local intervention, it won't matter. Will it? Because why will that matter if the kids still know, no, I know I can go to that crossroads on Ginger Road, Kampala Road, and I know white people there are going to give me money. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Hear my true story. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, so uh, that's it. I mean, you, you mentioned about white privilege. How did yeah. you, as a white person, how did you reflect on this issue? How did you deal with some of the the white privilege things that happen to a white person in Uganda? How would they deal with this? According to your experience, what can you share with someone? How well, can let, that be reflective? Let, let, let me give you an example. Mm. One of my best friends in, in Uganda, she's not Ugandan, but she's, she's um, African. I won't say which country she's originally from, but she's African. And she's my best friend. We used to go out a lot, um, at least once a week. And I'll never forget going to a very nice restaurant with her. And she was already there when I got there. She was sit, uh, sitting near the bar and um, she didn't have a drink. And I sat down with her and I said, oh, you haven't got a drink. And she said, no, they haven't, give, they haven't uh, asked me what I want to drink yet. I said, all right. So I sat down with her. Next, a waiter came up, looked at me and said, what do you want to drink? So I said what I wanted to drink and then they walked off. They still didn't take my friend's order. So I got up and I walked over to the waiter and I said to him, why didn't you take my friend's order? Oh, oh, I'll come back now and I'll take your order. It's just small, small things like that. We used to go out a lot. I saw you, you see it more. You don't see it when you're out with your white friends. You see it when you're with a black friend. Because we've been to, like I said, lots of different restaurants and they would always look to me or expect me to be paying the bill, not thinking that she would pay the bill. I mean, she earned much more money than me because um, I was a volunteer, obviously. But they would always, always, yeah, the default was always me. So as a white person, you have to make sure all the time that you're pushing your privilege down and saying, what about my friend and my friends pay or my friends doing this and to, to bring them up onto the same level that you're being treated as. It's only something really small, but I really saw that throughout my entire time there, that once you're aware of white privilege, what it looks like, how your black friend or black person in the environment is not being given the same chances, it's not being asked to speak, it's not being whatever. It's, I mean, you know how it is, it's huge. The whole area is, is, is massive. You have to be aware all the time 
I'm in a black environment. They're going to put elevate me. They're going to put that person down. So what do I have to do to make sure that I elevate them and make sure that that person learns something from the situation as well? Mm, yeah, I can really understand that because I've experienced something like that. Also, one time I took the... I have interns that come from Europe to the internship in our organization. So I try to... I take them for for dinner, host them for dinner as the organization and then the the waiter comes and takes orders from the white young people and leaves the other african people who are there on the same table and they continue and then we tell them oh my friend you need to make orders for everyone where have you left us you get that that yeah. was but that's so interesting because i didn't know if it was just happening with me but if that's a general thing then you know but they, but this is a, this but this is, i mean it goes so deep it's so multifaceted isn't it because if you train the the, the waiters and as a management if you say all people are equal before the eyes of god which is how i believe you know we are all equal before the eyes of god um so you make sure that you take all the orders of everyone don't assume the white person's uh, paying you just say um, who's paying you paying individually or, or is there somebody paying you you're looking at the whole group you make eye contact with the black people as well as 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 the white people but um but it's very 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 multifaceted because unfortunately because of colonialism and because of this kind of continuing educational colonial system that your children are still getting these days which is basically always bad you know you're bowing before the white person white people are better white people know better than you white people are more intelligent than you they work harder than you they've got everything better than you their chances are better you know that whole mentality if that is continuing if there's this like um if if black people have been made to feel lesser than white people that that change needs to start happening by all of us doing our part to make that happen because it's not going to change otherwise is it like like this the waiters the waiters shouldn't be doing this especially in i mean okay in in local restaurants you can kind of like not make excuses for them but it's a bit different but in javas and like all of these posh posh places we're talking about all the high end restaurants my gosh there's no excuse for that there is no excuse for that yeah no i mean excuse. I, i can share with you uh, one of my personal experience uh with this white privilege uh we went to school with our uh, volunteers from german they are doing volunteer in uganda in my organization So I got to school with my dreads, dreadlocks, and I'm the one leading the team there. So they allowed the volunteers, the white people, to get into school. And they said, oh, we don't allow you rastas, because we almost three of us were having dreadlocks. And they said, we don't like you rastas to come in our school. They stopped us, and they allowed the volunteers. Yeah. And, and the volunteers don't know what to say, because they don't know what we are going to do in the school. They are just yeah. there for, for work. They are just there to to help, and we are the experts. Was that and that's in Uganda, or was that in Germany? That was in Uganda. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I found that as well. It was really interesting that you know Rastas, um, or or even if they're not following the Rastafarian faith and they just got dreads because they like it from a fashion point of view, there's so much prejudice against them, isn't there? 
There's a lot of prejudice. Yeah, you know, of course. people seem mm. to think that you're a drug dealer, a drug person, and you're not a good, you know, you're not good, you're stubborn, all of these terms that they use, um, which is a shame because, you know, as you've seen now living in the West, there's so many different hairstyles and haircuts, and there's a lot more free self-expression in the way that you, you know, dye your hair or have your hairstyle or what you wear or what you don't wear than, than it is in Uganda. But in Uganda, there seems to be much more a call for conformity. You know, they want you to conform, to look a certain way and to act a certain way um, than this freedom of speech, of freedom of expression of your hair and your clothes as well. I, I, I did notice that it was different in that way. Yeah. So did you get in? Did they let you in in the end or they didn't even let you in? Of, of course, when they refused, I told them, yeah, because I'm the one supposed to do this. So if I'm not in, we all look leaving. And then oh they, they informed the director of the school. Ah, we can't. And then the director of the school was like, okay, you are the one in charge. Okay. Now come inside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's just that kind of like, even when you, when you're in challenge, you go to the police station, you go to the offices. Yeah. Like we have in Uganda, I don't know that you you heard about it, about the white color job. Yeah. The yeah, white yeah. color job. Yeah. Like you go with the white yeah. person who's doing nothing, but to accompany you so that you can get the job. Do you know what though? It's really interesting because I find that the very presence of a white person in a Ugandan context in a in a, a Ugandan um, community situation, whatever, it just changes everything. I found that you know towards the end, or not even towards the end, like for the last few years, I didn't go all the time to the village because because my colleagues were able to speak freely to me and a lot more open to me. It was problematic about me going because when I would go. Um, suddenly everyone thinks money's turned up and it would just go on to that angle. Whereas when it was just the, the Ugandan team, because I was the only white person in our small team. So when they went on their own, you know, you could just get down to business in terms of like talking about, okay, what's going on? How are things? How are you finding, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then when I was there, it just changed the, the dynamic too much to the degree. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'd like to revisit this like in a year and see how I feel in a year when I've had more time to process everything. But I remember thinking to myself and actually even saying to a lot of white people before I left, I don't even know if we should be here. I know that sounds really strange. I think it's okay if white people go to Uganda uh, <coughs> for uh, as tourists, you know, if they're going to sow into the local economy, that's great, of course, go there on holiday. But in terms of being highly visible, in a in a uh, in a in a Africa in a Ugandan environment, I I'm wondering if if we bring more problems than we bring solutions. Actually, I don't know. I mean, of course, if somebody's highly skilled, for example, you know, my training is photography and filmmaking. I wouldn't call me highly skilled, but it's still my training, and of course, theatre and music. Um, but I think I think it, there are enough amazing Ugandan actors, musicians, photographers, filmmakers. I've met many. Do they need me? No. Um, so I don't know. You have to think about what, what, how can you really use who you are, what you are, if you've got a heart for Uganda in the most impactful way. And what I realized the last few months before I left, okay, I know what the future is for me in terms of my 
relationship with what's happened over the last 12 years is that I can talk to people. And I, you know, you asked me to go on your podcast. I thought, there we go. That's the first, that's how I feel that the door is opening for me now to talk and uh, in on podcasts or in, in person and share the truth and share what I saw and share what I learned and share what I think is a good idea and isn't it isn't a good idea because I honestly think that there are so many incredible Ugandans scholars academics medical people politicians there are there are some good politicians who are trying to get into power and stuff let them shine support them from behind in an in an invisible way you know, donate or do what you can do. When you know you've got some Ugandan people that are brilliant, support those organisations, those Ugandan-led organisations. Believe in them. Don't believe they're all corrupt because they're not all corrupt. All white people aren't corrupt. All black people aren't corrupt. You know how it is. But that's what I really feel now. I wonder, I really honestly wonder, should we even be over there? in positions of, of power, leading big organisations. I, I wonder what the impact we're having is. I don't know what you think. I, I, I think the, the, the globe is quite a small village now. Everyone should be somewhere, wherever they are. But it's to know your role, as you said, to reflect on your privilege, either your privilege as a white person or your privilege as a politician or your privilege as a musician. When you reflect on this, then you can impact the society where you are in the right way. Just like um, I can share with you, we, 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 we always ask schools to allow us to go in their school speak about child trafficking. So there was a point when a school refused, not just one, like two schools or three, refused to give us a platform to talk to their children. So it was me who went there and then I was denied. Then I went back to the organization then I had some volunteers around. But because I know about this white privilege, so we have these volunteers around. It's okay, yeah? next time I'm going to go back to the schools, I tag around with these white privilege people. And we went to a school. And the school did not even refuse. They just gave us the dates and the time and when to come just because there was a white person. Yeah. You get that? See? So Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So I was in this position where I like, should I... Because I'm, a, I know these white people. They have the white privilege that they move with here in Uganda, and I know that when I go to school with a white person, the teachers are going to give me a time and date because of the colonial history of schools that white people, white people from Europe, they know they are informed. So let them talk to our children. Yet it is me who is going to talk. <laughs> yeah. You get that? Yeah, that's it. So yeah. I, I don't know whether that was the wrong thing that I did. To no, tag around it's true. these volunteers, and I got space and time to talk to the children about human trafficking and child trafficking. It's true, but do you know what the other thing that I noticed quite a lot in Uganda? I mean, it wasn't so much with the younger generation; maybe it was more to do with the older generation. But people don't kind of challenge each other, Uganda to Ugandan, you know, like just to, to say, "Why are you treating me like this?" You know, so many people just seem to just bow down to what the Ugandan person was saying, even if they were having prejudice against them. And I found that really fascinating and interesting, really, to 
to witness. And equally, when I would see a Ugandan stand up and be very strong and bold and say no, and how good that was when they did that. Because like in any um, community, in any country in the world, if we don't speak truth to power, power is always going to remain and it's always going to remain abusing the people. So you have to speak truth to power, but it does take a lot of courage and boldness and you will you will be labelled and you will be targeted and you will have things said about you and newspapers write things about you and whatever. But it's the right thing to do, isn't it? At the end of the day, speaking truth to power. And um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting, interesting dynamic. You know, it's a shame really when you see fellow Ugandans bring you down. It's really bad because you would think, no, they would be bringing you up. They would want you to succeed. They would want you to have the opportunity and to do well. So to push you down and to let the white person come for whatever they whatever they think they're going to get from that white person. Do they think they're going to get a tip or something or get some money? I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. Why. Of course, um, I, I can't blame the, the people in Uganda because they're not informed about their power. They are right. When people yeah. are not informed, and also they are taught this from school. I learned in school as a child about the European history, about colonialism, and they teach it was good. You learn in school that colonialism was good. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, and they teach you that people who were against colonialism were bad people. You learn that in school. I learned that. I trained as a teacher, and I'm supposed to teach that to the children. And you see how it is. It is really difficult. Even in churches, we, we I was in a school with some volunteers and we were, the teacher was like, every child who's making noise has a black heart. Every child who's quiet has a white heart. Can you imagine? Terrible. Teaching this. Terrible. And, and this, Honestly. Is, this is the colonial that is continuing the the new colonialism, it is in the school, it's in the teachings. When they teach in the Bible, they are teaching white. You find that they put the picture of Jesus or hey, it's white and they say this is a picture of Satan is black and these are taught to children. So how do you expect to change this mindset of people when they're in offices that, no, I'm a black investor, I'm an African, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I am really informed, I'm here to talk to young people. Yeah. And the sad thing is, it's still going on now in school. Yeah. Nothing's changed. It's, it's, the, it's the same curriculum, I think, isn't it? As when you, you went through. Yeah, it's the same yeah. curriculum. Same curriculum. It's absolutely frightening. No, it's true. I mean, if you look at, compared to uh, Americans, you know how confident Americans are and they really believe in themselves. Oh my gosh, yeah. I learned that so quickly when I was, my children went to an American school for a while. And wow, when you watch them at sports, Gosh, incredible. Um, the British, um, uh, especially the Welsh, you know, within the UK, we're much more um, kind of put ourselves down in, a little bit. But um, but it's not as bad as the Ugandans, because like you said, you're not being taught that from school. White people, you're this, you're this. But black people are fantastic, you know, and having that whole thing, you know, everyone's being taught pretty much um, in school. A good enough curriculum, Um hopefully, but not like that, not what you're talking about there. Jesus is white, Satan is black, black heart, white heart is good, black heart is bad. I mean, that is, that's actually abusive. 
that's actually abusive right there. Yeah, it is. It? it is. Educationally abusive. It is. And of course, I, I, I went through it. I see it. I've seen it happen. And we try to change this most of the times. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Hear my true story. This brings us to another question that I would just want to ask you. Yeah? Okay. I mean, what would you advise someone if he wants to move to a country in, in the global south, maybe in Africa, maybe in, in, in Uganda for this particular podcast? What advice would you, would you give this person if they are coming from the UK, maybe Canada, maybe Europe, maybe other global north countries, and they want to move to Uganda to live there? What would be the advice you give to these to these people? Um, that's a very good question. Because you know, you you grow when you're there. You might not be able to ask these questions before you go because you might not be in that place in your life that you can ask these questions. But um, I mean, for me, I already had some very good Ugandan friends that I've been friends with for a very long time um, before I went, so I knew you know, they were my friends. So I knew about the country and the culture through them. And I had other black friends and other friends, a diverse group of friends. So I wasn't like used to just being friends with white people and working with just white people. But I know for some people that have gone over there that have never had friends that are black and have never lived in a black environment or or lived in a black area of their city, it can be a shock to some people. So you might not realize that you're actually quite racist. I mean, we've all got racist things in us and we don't even know sometimes that we have or or whatever but some people are like full-on full-on to the to the nth degree of being racist they don't realize until they're plopped into the middle of of living in in Uganda but anyway aside from that I would say definitely um try and not talk so much and try and listen really listen to your Ugandan colleagues that you're working with and to your Ugandan neighbors, learn, learn, learn. Try and leave your um, assumptions about Ugandans and about the country at, at the door and just go open-minded and open-hearted and try and just learn and make sure all the time that you're aware of white privilege, like we said earlier. Really, it's very important. You have to make sure that you're elevating um, your Ugandan colleagues all the time. It's uh, it's sometimes a minute to minute thing, hour by hour. I'm not talking about once a month. Like all the time, be aware of your white privilege, and and make sure you don't allow anyone to elevate you. And just educate people and say, I don't want to be elevated. Just treat me the same as you would to um, a Ugandan. Um, but yeah, and just just check yourself. Keep checking yourself all the time. Why am I here? Am I here on a holiday? Am I actually here to escape? you know, a breakup of a boyfriend, but now I'm putting all my toxic energy out (laughs) on Ugandans. Am I here to make myself feel good? Am I here to do a job that I knew I would never do back in the UK? And I know that a Ugandan should really be doing it, but I've got the opportunity. So I'm taking that job from them. You know, look, really question your your motives all the time uh, and learn all the time. But I would say self-awareness and be aware constantly 24 seven, because there is so much more that is happening under the surface than you realize. And you just have to tap into that if you can. Mm. 
Okay, thank you for that wonderful advice. I, I want to ask, do you think it's really important for someone to integrate well in a community in Uganda when they decide to live there? Do you think, what, what do you mean? Is it easy to integrate or do you think I it's mean, like, possible? Is, is, is it really important that someone should work hard to, be, to, to integrate in the system or to integrate in the communities within Uganda? I mean, like, oh, definitely. Make definitely. friends, I, keep in touch, get to know your neighborhood, get to know who, get to know how the system works. Definitely. You have to. It's wrong. It's wrong to live in a bubble and it's wrong to live in these isolated white communities within Kampala, which happen so much because, of course, people want to live in these nice big houses, sometimes $2,000, sometimes $3,000 a month houses. And, um, you know, I mean, I knew a little um, neighborhood. Everybody was white there. I mean, it was it was quite remarkable. I mean, where, where we lived, um, we lived there for the entire time, apart from the first month when we lived in an apartment, you know, when we were looking for a house to rent. We lived there for the entire time. And um, we were the only white family there in the whole of that area. Um, there was a, a, a Australian guy uh, for the first couple of years, he had a lovely uh, Ugandan wife. Then they moved back to Australia. But apart from those, everybody uh, was Ugandan, which was great because I didn't go there to live in a in a kind of a bubble. You know, I wanted to live in a Ugandan um, area. And we got to know our neighbours as much as we could because some neighbours were very transitional because they were rental properties. But the ones that were there that had bought properties, yeah, we got to know them. Actually, the one lady before I was leaving, she came and knocked on the gate and uh, she had a lot of grandchildren which she was raising, who she was raising. And um, she said, oh, if you've got any bedding, you know, please let me know because I, I would love to to have some. So on the, on the last day, I went and took her quite a lot of bedding. Oh, my gosh. She was so happy. I was so pleased I could do that for her because, you know, this wasn't like, uh bagging situation she was my neighbor i'd been there for 11 and a, over 11 and a half years and just like i would here if i was getting rid of stuff like i did when i moved you give your neighbor stuff and your friends and say do you want this do you want that because i'm moving to uganda it was nice to be able to do that and we got to know the lc defense very well because we had three attempted break-ins so we got to know them well in the local police post and the local shops yeah they became we just we just became just another family in the end because we've been there for so long, and I think that's what makes a difference when people find out you can speak a little bit of Luganda, not much. I I tried um, when they know that you can speak a little bit and they know you know a little bit about the the culture and you've actually you know decided to stay for a long long time. I think you're treated a little bit differently than somebody that's just there for a week. Okay. I, I really get I really get your picture. So I want to ask you. Talked about the bubbles. I didn't know much about these bubbles. At what, what, what? Why do? I mean, exp, they call themselves. So they call themselves experts. That's what they call themselves. Why do they create these bubbles of Europe within Uganda or Europe within Africa or German or US yeah, or UK it's, it's, within Africa? It, it's a good question, isn't it? And 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 the whole the whole phrase expat is an interesting <laughs> is an interesting one as well, isn't it? Because you're not called an expat. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm not called an expat. No. In, in German, I'm called uh, a migrant. Exactly, I'm called a migrant, yeah. and yeah. 
that's so, so, that, so that's really what I was. I wasn't an expat. I was an immigrant over there. But of course, with, with the whole terminology of expat, that's also a very colonialist uh, white privileged term because that privilege is not given to black and brown communities. It's just given to white communities. It's, it's a really interesting thing. Um, yeah, I think, I think what tends to happen is they, they tend to want to, to stay in the nice big posh areas and um, maybe there's a lot of fear and stuff around, uh, around it. Maybe they think they're going to get attacked in, in other areas. Although the funny thing is, you know, Kansanga, so I know a lot of white people that used to live in Kansanga. And honestly, the amount of real proper break-ins that actually went in, went through, they got the staff, um, was monumental compared to, to mine. I mean, once in my area, we, like I said, we had three attempted, but two of those attempted were before we had our dogs. Once we had our dogs, we only had um, one attempted and they only cut the, the razor wire. It wasn't anything more serious than that. The other two were more serious, uh, cut a wall, uh, cut a hole in the wall, compound wall. And they were trying to, um, get the bars off the windows, you know, so that was more of a serious one. But, um, yes, yeah, so maybe there's just this, this thing about if we live in those posh areas that it, it's safer, but in, like I said, in my opinion, it's not, I mean, a friend of mine as well got really badly mugged and had his, uh, by some boulders and, um, and had his, uh, laptop stolen and was really badly beaten up. And he was, he's walking through Kansanga. Never had that where we lived. But uh, yeah, maybe they all want to just stay near each other. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. You would think if you're going to Uganda that you would want to uh, to integrate. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I can't, I, I, you'd have to ask them or Kato because mm. I really don't know why why they don't. Yeah, I, I Most mean, people don't. Yeah, I really, I, I just ask because I, I, I find it. Uh, I'm a Ugandan. I find it that I find most, uh, yeah, these so-called experts from Europe, US, you know, Canada. They, they, they tend to live in a, a small community within themselves, and they tend to find them in the small same area of going, like shopping and that. They create a small Europe or a small US within the African countries. Yeah, I, I find it that way. But I can understand sometimes it's about finding home, finding. Yeah, maybe it's yeah. a sense of belonging. Because if I think about the city where I'm living now, I mean, I'm not living in this 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 area of the city now. But when I lived here over 20 years ago, um, when I was in university, um, I lived in um, a mainly um, Indian and Pakistani area. And, and it was very, very heavily populated by those um by uh, people from from those countries with shops and restaurants and everything. So I think it it does kind of seem to happen even in the West, doesn't it? I know when I went to New York, there was like Little Italy and um, different areas that that certain people, maybe it's just about a sense of belonging as well that they want, because you do miss home, don't you? I'm sure, I'm sure you do. You miss Uganda and um, maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's that, a sense of identity, sense of belonging, which is okay as long as you make sure that you also allow the Ugandans to become part of that community as well. And it's not, not, it's not becoming an exclusive um, thing that just you're, you won't allow anybody into that little bubble apart from the Germans or the Austrians or the French or mm. Americans. You know, it becomes a, an open-handed community, then it's fine. With you every week.
Hear my true story. Yeah, our dear listeners, we cannot continue now, but guess what? It is a really long episode, and we are continuing with our conversation with our guest. And join us in our next episode of this same conversation with our guest. Would you like to say bye to the listeners? Yeah, thank you for listening. I hope I didn't talk too much. I hope maybe something I said challenged you or made you think twice, as they say in Uganda. Um, yeah, and thank you. And thank you for listening to Akato's podcast. He's great. I'm a big fan of his work and everything he does. So, yeah. 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 So, our dear listener, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. And we can't continue beyond this. And I would just like to say bye for now. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode. Hear my true story. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Music by Edwin Matovo, hosted and produced by Otako. Subscribe to our podcast for more stories and visit us on our website, hearmytruestory.com for more stories. All the links are listed in the show notes of this podcast.